to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. I'm not sure anyone knows this, but my very first radio show was co-hosted, co-created with my guest, Dr. Christopher Valentine, my big brother. Now, don't laugh. I'm being professional. Growing up in the 80s, I don't remember how it started, but we began a radio show with a small microphone and an old tape recorder and recorded the loco local news, even though we weren't bilingual at the time. Now you are bilingual. See. See. As for Dad. We'd record it every Christmas Eve or so, and it had the news, it had a cast of zany characters, and even a cooking show. And who would have thought... Years later, I would have a podcast of my own. Well, I mean, we wouldn't even have known what a podcast was back then. And you would disappoint our audience by becoming a doctor. Sorry. And going to medical school. It's okay. Such a disappointment. Welcome, Dr. Valentine. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming. (laughs) Yes, it has. Um, I do want to point out one thing. Our favorite segment, I should mention, was our cooking show with Penelope and Charlie. Penelope Gordon. Penelope Gordon. I was sort of a Julia Childs type character, and you were my mischievous son that ruined every recipe. Yes. It was really a comedy duo for the ages. Just pure chaos. Pure chaos. You just ruined everything I would try to cook. It was awesome. It was great. And we kind of excluded the other siblings, if I remember. Well, correctly. Yeah, I think. I mean, Gina would try to kind of get in on it, and but we were not really good older siblings to her. Sometimes we weren't. We've since made up for it, though. Yeah, I think so. But at the time, we just we didn't have time for that. But I think the trauma we imposed really kind of shaped <laughs> the the mature person that she is today. I do too. So you're welcome, Gina. You are also famously um, the last of the siblings to make it on the podcast. No, I've been well on the podcast. I was on the radio show yeah, once before. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm sorry about no, that. I, no, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I guess I'm just saying that I'm saving the best for last, but don't tell anybody else, especially Gina. Okay, it'll be ours. Again. Okay, thanks. Now, uh, something that I appreciate about you is that you're very studious and that you study a lot, you read a lot, and you can disseminate a lot of information in layman's terms. So you're saying I talk a lot is what no, you're saying. No, I'm saying that you dumb it down for us groundlings. <laughs> well, no. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, I, the, it's an important part, I think, uh, in clinical practice. And I don't know if I want to use the term dumb it down because, I mean, that just kind of makes it sound like— But I, I, You I, know what I mean. I know what you mean. I know the spirit of what you're saying. And I, But it people are not really interested in how smart you are. They are no. interested in what you have to offer them and that you care about them. That's and that so is, true. And, and that is— and I, and I think a lot of times within medicine— we do a disservice to our patients when we talk, we use a lot of lingo, mm-hmm. either, and many times unintentionally. Um, sure. In, in trying to explain uh, what, uh, you know, what's going on with their health. Yeah, and it, it, it's such a topic that everyone is concerned about. Yeah. It's universal, and it feels overwhelming, and healthcare especially feels overwhelming now. And I thought, this is so great that I trust your advice, right? And... Um, I've texted you a lot, like 
pictures of my kids' cuts <laughs> and injuries. Like, do they need stitches? Yes, or, stitches. No stitches. Or like, I'll be like, look at this rash. <laughs> should I? How concerned should I be about this on a scale from one to ten? Um, or do we need to go to the ER? Or and the I love that you always number one give the big brother smart aleck response, which is, oh my gosh, your arm's gonna fall off <laughs> in, in thirty seconds, <laughs> which is something you texted to me once. Do you remember that? <laughs> um, no, but I don't. But I don't doubt that I did that. Or sometimes I'll text you and you'll be like, "No, anything but that." <laughs> That's funny. And then you give me the right information. Yes. So well, it's because that's a like, talent. Because well, I'll just tell you in clinic with real patients, you can't do that <laughs> no, very often. Okay, I will say I will say I had you know some patients I'd seen for you know many many years. I could joke around with a little bit, you know. Uh-huh. But you know, I had some patients I'd seen for like you know like fifteen years. But for but yeah, ninety nine point nine percent. Yeah, you don't have that chance. So it's no like, one wants a jokey doctor. I just well, and I think I've texted you from time to time saying, "Oh man, I was in a meeting, or I was in," yes. and it's like, and I had this like this would have been this was the perfect quit, but it was completely inappropriate. inappropriate. So you're kind of my my, my inappropriate oh, advice sink. Thank you know, you. it's like yes. I gotta call. Okay, I gotta write this down. Uh, <laughs> this is gonna kill for Lisa. <laughs> so yeah, it's good that we can provide that service yes, to each other. True. Um, I'm sure that you get sick of family and friends like just asking you medical questions actually actually not really oh, i kind of i don't i don't really i mean i honestly no honestly honestly i feel like hey this is this is what i signed up for this is what i am doing and this is you know in in medicine to a certain degree yes it's a job but really it's a career and it's a calling and yeah. that kind of encompasses a lot of your your entire life and i think everyone kind of comes at it from a slightly different you know perspective but within i would say like within family friends neighborhood within our church congregation i i try to just say no this is what this is what you do within an appropriate scope i love course. that your outlook on it is so Service-minded. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're such a great guy. Well, Thanks for being here. I don't. I don't say. <laughs> I know that all sound. That all. No. Just, that all sounded it, so high-minded it, and no, everything. No, it didn't. But I'm I, not making but, fun of you. I promise. But what? No, I. I know you're not. But I'm just saying. But what I'm saying is, is that like I made a decision that that okay, if if I do, I do kind of bristle a little bit when, oh hey my friend's brother-in-law's oh, sister yeah. wants to ask you a question. And it's just like, well, okay. You know yeah. that. But for, yeah, for everyone, it's just, you know, we all have our ways that we, I just see this as like, this is my way I can serve or show love. I love that. And so I want to capitalize on that <laughs> and have you benefit, have your knowledge and experience benefit the the Lisa Show listener and and podcast, if you don't mind. Sure. And and first of all, I feel like we need a disclaimer. Do we need one? Can you make one up? Well, um, what, what are you saying? Like these um, these comments have not been evaluated by the FDA, by CMS, or by any regulatory agency, and it should not be, uh, <laughs> should not be interpreted as uh, medical advice. Please consult with your own medical professional for <laughs> the actual <laughs> for the actual. Well, are you going to be asking me like a lot of really specific questions? I just, I'm like, you're so quick. That's exactly what I wanted. Oh, welcome to Basic Care for You and Your Family with Dr. Valentine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I really do want to ask like some general questions that I 
feel that uh, we get a lot for the show. Mm-hmm. Whenever we have like a pediatrician on or a family practitioner, when we used to uh, have a different format. Sure. We would just answer like, hey, what's going on now and how's it doing? And with a podcast, I feel like this is an opportunity to have an overall um, sort of refresher on like basic care. Okay. That that a lot of people don't know. And you and I have had these conversations and they've been extremely helpful to me and my family, honestly. So I'm going to dive in. Okay, it's cold and flu and COVID and RSV season. Yes. <laughs> and I, And good. everyone's like, wait, what? And like our sister, Amanda, just had a baby. And so we're like, don't go anywhere or touch right. anything or breathe or do anything because we don't want that baby to get sick. And that was, <laughs> you know, that was, our, that was our policy as well. I mean, as uh, your listeners may or may not know, my uh, I'm married to a pediatric infectious disease specialist. My, uh, my Which wife, is so great. My wife, yes, it's. I'll tell you, it makes for some really interesting pillow talk. I'll tell you. I'm what. sure. It um, does. She, she uh, you know, we have four kids. She was in general pediatrics for many years and went back and is doing some subspecialty training uh, right now. But uh, with all of our kids, we just had a general policy, and I'll just and like I said, this this is again disclaimer. This is what two doctors do. We would not take our newborns out of the house really for like about six weeks. Yeah. We would, I mean, with very few exceptions, I think there were a couple times where, like, we maybe went to a small family event before the six weeks. But certainly within those first few weeks, we're just, like, just lock, we're just locking it down because we're just so accustomed to seeing the effects of, you know, like you mentioned, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus on kids and seeing a lot of the, uh, a lot of the the devastation and and real uh, uh, morbidity that would come about because yeah. of that. So, uh, so that was that was what we did. So, mm-hmm. like I said, your mileage may vary, but that was that was our policy. And I stuck to that policy. And if you'll remember, my youngest Margaret got RSV and mm-hmm. had to be hospitalized. Right. And I know exactly how she got it. She got it from her siblings. Yeah, Hugh, yeah. who was two years old, just kept kissing her. Yes, and I'd say, "Don't kiss her." <laughs> she's so cute. I know, and she's new, but you need a big snotty nose and. Like, and that's what RSV is for awful. everybody else. For RSV, for I mean, for all I know, I had RSV a couple of weeks ago. I don't really know, um, but it, yeah, it, it's just a, as far as everybody else is concerned, it's just you know common cold. Okay, so this is my my question. Yeah. We know that this is everywhere, and we've been told on major news services, hey, this season is going to be particularly bad for right. all of these. So uh, my question is: is how worried should we be, and what which, what should we do at, for basic? family care just to take the, when they say take precautions, what does that mean? Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, we don't have an immunization against RSV. We do against the flu, as I think everybody is aware. And I know that there's historically, for some reason, I get a lot of resistance. Um, you know, when I was in clinical practice, a lot of resistance in getting the flu shot. But I would say that, yeah, just to answer your question, yeah, get a flu shot. Uh, I think that COVID has really... Uh, caught a lot of the attention. But the fact is, is that tens of thousands of people were dying every year from just regular influenza A. And this year could shape up to be worse, uh, the worst year in well over a decade, uh, at least since like 2013. It's hard to say really quite yet. um, But all I know is that when, when I look at the CDC um, projections and the current cases, I mean, there've there've already been like, for example, there've already been about well over 2,000 deaths from flu. 
Um, and I think we've become, unfortunately, I think we've become numb to numbers like that. It's just like 2,000, what are you talking about? Like we, we had million, a million people die from, from COVID. I know, isn't um, it weird how used we get, how we get used to it? Yeah, we are kind of accustomed to it. And, and yes, these individuals who are, are succumbing to the disease, you know, typically have a lot of other chronic illnesses and whatnot. But that that is just, this very much is the same situation that we had with, uh, you know, with COVID, which is it's not just about us and, and the health of of ourselves or, or our children who generally are going to be able to do, you know, unless they're infants like we were talking about, um, are going to do reasonably well. It's the people around us. It's about trying to keep those who are the most vulnerable yeah. around us uh, from getting sick. Yeah. And it becoming fatal. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so in addition to the flu, uh, getting uh, getting your annual flu shot, uh, and it's, you know, it's not too late. I know that we're already in the thick of it, but it's never, you know, it's really never too late. Uh, getting a booster for COVID-19, mm-hmm. obviously. I have, you know, just a couple of months ago, they came out with the uh, new, the newer variant type that is specific. That's going to be much more effective at protecting you against disease. Okay. And then wash your hands. And all of the other things. So <laughs> don't universal. Be don't be gross. Universal precautions and things like that. <laughs> now, you know, I, I mean, yes, washing hands and just being aware of what you're touching and all the rest of that. I mean, I think everyone's kind of yeah. kind of heard a lot about that. Now, I don't know. Are you, do you want to ask about masking and what our responsibilities are there and what we should do? Yeah. I mean, because that that is still that's still kind of controversial. I mean, I think that there. There is benefit in certain circumstances. If you go to most most clinics and hospitals these days, everyone's still masked up. Yeah, so, I had made an appointment, uh, f- and there were instructions for me to wear a mask yes. there and things. And I, I feel like that's pretty standard across the country. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I've seen some variability in, uh, from clinic to clinic because uh, in my current position, I kind of go around and I visit different doctor's offices. But uh, I would say, you know, use your best judgment. If you have any doubts that you yourself are sick, then I think it's just being, you know, it's just being a good citizen to uh, to stay masked up um, and just not giving, I mean, just just don't give healthcare people grief if you are going to a healthcare yeah, facility. Nice. Just, you know, be nice. It's just like they're doing the best they can. And they've been through just a real, a very difficult couple of years. So I just would just say, you know, please just kind of think think about. I uh, forgot where about that. Yeah. Not uh, not COVID. I didn't forget about that, but I just forgot how intense it, it was because I'm not in that that it field for healthcare professionals. Terribly traumatic for many people. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a bundle of fun this here. Is, <laughs> this is this isn't what you wanted. This is not the local local news, <laughs> <laughs> but this is helpful. It it and and that and. Whereas before was silly. This yes. is this is actually helpful, and I appreciate it. Um, it, it. This is the question that a lot of moms and dads ask each other, you know, on the street or yeah. like on the phone, and they text each other, like, "How do I know when I need to take them in, and how do I know when I just need to keep them home?" And and I sure. know this is a really difficult question, but I ask you this a lot: How do I know when just to let the cold or the flu, or I don't know what it is, maybe it's COVID, who mm-hmm. knows, or just do its thing? And when do I need to take my kid to the doctor? Or make an appointment. Sure. Well, I think it is very age dependent. I think kind of going off of what we were talking about before, with small babies, uh, when they are having difficulty breathing, that is really where you, you just take them in. Where you want to take them in, and so okay. Well, what does that mean? They have difficulty breathing. I mean, you know, all all these you know toddlers just 
you know, a couple of our kids, I swear, they just were just snotty for like a year straight, you know? Right. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> the bubbles. And it's <laughs> so gross. Just, and you're constantly <laughs> just trying to, yeah, kind of clear, their them, face clear and them out. Everything. They don't want to. Yeah. Well, and the thing, the thing that the, the the clinical sign that we're looking for is something that we call retractions. So that today's word oh, is retractions. Thank you. And retractions are when uh, babies or you know toddlers are are breathing so hard that they are sucking up between their ribs, underneath their ribs, maybe uh, above their clavicles, and and you're seeing some uh, what we call super supraclavicular uh, retractions which uh, is really that space kind of, you know, between your neck there. So if, you're, if your kids are, are really consistently having to really work and there's an increased work of breathing like that, that would be a good sign to go in. Um, certainly if they are becoming what we call cyanotic, that's our second word for the oh, day, wow. see? see? I was talking about like not using lingo, but I'm, what I'm trying to do is no, I'm, we're educating. trying, we're educating. We're going to learn some words. So cyanotic, you know, which means they are looking a little bit, as you can imagine, a little bit blue, a little Ooh. bit gray. So mm-hmm. if they're, if you're seeing their lips turning a little bit, uh, a little bit gray, I mean, sometimes during, <laughs> they're during fits of crying oh, and yeah. tantrums. Uh, yeah, all of our kids have done that. Where in fact, <laughs> I have this great picture of one of my kids just like, <laughs> just really upset about something, just <laughs> totally blue lips um, and. Uh, but that will resolve relatively quickly. But if it's looking consistently that way, that would be a good another good reason to take your kid in. One of uh, Christopher, my late husband, his brothers would have a tantrum or get so mad at his siblings and that he would regularly yes. pass out. <laughs> That, that happens. I've had a few. And they kids. still tease I've him a, about it today. And no, I, so I, it happens. And I am laughing, be, but it, maybe I shouldn't be. Is that serious? No. Uh, <laughs> okay. Breath-holding spells are not serious. I mean, you want to— you got to know I, the I'm difference gonna, between— I, I, I don't want to tell anyone not to—you know, if your kid passes out, I'm not going to tell anyone not to take their kid in to be evaluated because you want to make sure that it's not something else, that they're not having seizures or anything else like of that. Course. So with that disclaimer, I would say that it is a, a common thing sometimes for those breath-holding spells for kids well, that just— you have some com- kids who do that. <laughs> completely yes. just— They're just so beside themselves. And so, I don't know. Did any of your, did, did any of your kids do that? Once. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, once. And it freaked me out. Yeah. And I think, I'm sure I called you. Yeah. Like, do I need to take a minute or whatever? Because they remember. were so I mad. I can't remember if it was you or Gina. Yeah, but yeah. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it was me and my kids. Well, that's funny. So, uh, the the other thing, I'll just say from a clinical standpoint, we're looking at when, when we see little kids like breathing greater yeah. than 60 times a minute. Uh, but it's kind of hard to count breaths. But I mean, that's another guide. If if you're if you have a if you have a newborn that's breathing that quickly, that would be a good reason to take them in. And any any uh, you know and any uh, kid and uh, a baby under three months of age, mm-hmm. if they have any kind of fever, Anything. if they have any fever, they really do need to be evaluated. Okay, but what about for older kids and a fever? Well. Older kids in a fever, it's uh, there's kind of yeah more definitely more of a, a wait and see approach. You want to you, you want to kind of check in. In this forum, I want to say check in with your check in with your pediatrician or with your family medicine doc. But for the most part, routine fevers do not require a visit to the doctor. I mean, in the absence of any other really worrisome symptoms uh, themselves, but. But make sure that you're reviewing a lot of these systemic signs mm-hmm. with your doctor, including those respiratory signs. Uh, you know, very occasionally there could be uh, uh, concerns about urinary tract issues that that oh. are um, not as common, but can also cause fever as well. 
You should have Marilyn come on. She could. I know. She I've could had scare Marilyn on before. More. I know. Marilyn could scare us a lot better because <laughs> she's in infectious diseases. Here's the thing about Marilyn. She's real busy right now. That's true. It's really hard. She's on service right now. I know. <laughs> I'm not saying that I tried to call her first. I'm not. I'm not. Don't put those words in my mouth. I'm saying I'm so glad you're here. about cold medicine and cough medicine over-the-counter um, when we feel crummy? And and what works best? Okay, well, to kind of go back to, to the conversation about kids, a lot of those cough and cold medicines, they just, to be honest, there's just not a lot of really good evidence. And to be honest, I haven't really looked for a, a couple, of, for a few years, but a lot of the latest evidence that I saw from just a few years ago just shows that it's difficult to really show that a lot of these decongestants and cough suppressants are really doing a lot to really improve quality of life or the duration of illness or any of those other kinds of things. And, and certainly with certain uh, certain medications like dextromethorphan, which is a cough suppressant, mm-hmm. or diphenhydramine, which is an antihistamine, you have to be ex- you really do have to be extremely careful with with younger kids, and some of those really should be avoided in a lot of the uh, smaller children. So, with our kids, to tell you the truth, we really didn't give our kids cough and cold medicine that much until they were a bit older, like, you know, until they were like about seven or eight years old. What we did do, I'm not really answering your question, but no, I am going to, I'm going to, but it. I will say what, what we did do with our kids was we did nasal saline irrigations and suction, which they uh, hated. hated. They saw that bulb. They were like, no. Um, but it's like it, blowing their nose for them. It is because what you're doing is, I mean, you really have to be aggressive I mean, I hate to say it. <laughs> you have, well, you have, two doctors you have to have aggressively one, suctioning out their kids, but you have to you have to inject in some of the the saline first, and then yeah, you to and loosen the, the mucus. Just loosen. You just go real. Do, and we got really good at just you know squirt it in and then suction it out, squirt it in, suction it out, and just to try to uh, clear the symptoms because I mean, yeah, they're, they're miserable. Just, they're they're just mucus machines, and it and just clearing. You, you, it's amazing how. <laughs> Much, oh, you know, so I, I but okay. but that is that was just simply much more effective. Okay, and and, and that's what they're going to do for you in the emergency room or in urgent care anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, they have those little tiny tubes that they stick yes. down to the back of your throat to section out. Yes, yep. I know how to use those. Those <laughs> are those are good. Th- those are actually more effective. Um, to do it effectively, you got to know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about as an adult? What do you take when you get a cold or the flu? I will take I will take some guaifenesin and dextromethorphan sometimes. Guaifenesin is like your brand is branded as like mucinex and the like. And that's basically it's an expectorant and it just loosens the mucus. I will say for it to work effectively, you have to be well hydrated, which often we're not when we're sick. And so if oh. you're taking that with and and you're you're taking that with a lot of uh, you know, a lot of fluid, it's just gonna kinda loosen things up. The dextromethorphan, it's a cough suppressant. I just take that just so I can sleep. And oh. so those are those are really the two main ones that I'll take. I mean, I'll occasionally take like, you know, like a NyQuil type, uh, you know, just to be able to sleep. But to t- I personally, I, this is just me. Just personally, okay, just you. during the day for like decongestants, I don't like decongestants. But that's just me. Some people, decongestants, they otherwise they can't function. For me, it just makes me irritable. It just oh. makes me just, uh, I don't know. And so I just avoid those personally. But your mileage may vary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Okay. 
Okay, this one we talk about a lot, and uh, I've gotten mixed reviews um, with friends, with family, and with you at different times. Okay. Can you guess what it is? Supplements. What should I be taking? What's the deal? Oh, boy. Um, And I know that this is a really extensive question, and I would just love— how do you feel today? What do you think is a general rule? Mm-hmm. How do you feel? I think that the supplement industry makes a lot of money and that that they do so because they are able to effectively interface, communicate, and make people feel that there is something lacking that they need to add to their lives. And... Um, do I think that there are maybe some corners here and there where where we our, our diet is is inadequate? Um, I think here and there, yes. So let me kind of just start with maybe a couple of the exceptions. I think you know certainly you need to see a doctor if you're iron deficient. Um, iron deficiency is is something that can be a little insidious for certain people, particularly if they have certain dietary restrictions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Vitamin D, I kind of go back and forth on vitamin D um, because, you know, what we're setting as a normal level of vitamin D, I think, is uh, could arguably be maybe we're setting the bar a little bit high because, you know, according to some of the more recent studies, like, I don't know, I've heard different people say like up to a third of people are vitamin D deficient yeah. and it's contributing to a lot of issues. So I'm kind mm. of, I think the jury's out a little bit on vitamin D and I kind of lean towards saying, you know, it can't hurt. You know, it can't hurt to supplement, uh, to supplement that. Um, I think for much older adults, oftentimes vitamin B12 deficiency, cyanocobalamin is a uh, is a uh, a major issue for them as it relates to uh, their blood production as well as nerve function and things like that. So I'm just telling you what the things that I actually saw in clinical practice. Those would probably oh, be that like the— things that people needed. Those are the things that people actually needed, like the top three things. But, you know, there's like a, a lot of these other ones that you learn in medical school that are just like these, you know, scurvy and pellagra and yeah. all these other things. <laughs> it's just like you just never see them, you know, because, okay. because we get enough of these vitamins in our regular diets. So— what about all these other things? Do I need to take like a Mega Man, you know, vitamin yeah. or or Centrum or anything else like that? I think for most people, if you're getting a reasonably balanced diet, it's just making it's just making your urine more expensive, okay, <laughs> and maybe kind of a bright <laughs> color, you know, and and you know, so I, I I'll just tell you like in my and okay, this is kind of going beyond the scope because this is getting into like a, you know in the doctor patient relationship, I don't like to like poo-poo what people are doing. You know right. what I'm saying? You know, because yeah. at first, at first I was, uh, you know, I'd say, oh, well, this is clearly not based in evidence. And, you know, because there's really been a huge push over the last 30 years in, you know, in, in Western medicine to say, hey, look, if we're going to recommend something, let's find some evidence that it actually works. If, you know, whether it's a surgical intervention or some kind of cancer treatment yeah. or whatever. It's just like, let's, let's actually, let, let's not uh, make recommendations based on what "Quote unquote makes sense based on the biochemistry we see, but let's like, is it actually saving lives? You know, yeah. I mean, that seems like a really simple question. It does, um, and and that's a huge part of my 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 current job in working with physicians to try to promote evidence based medicine. But I apply the same thing to uh, you know vitamin supplements, like you're talking about. So, so that said, um, when patients ask me about it, I 
want to just say, look, yes, these things certainly can, as the ads say, um, support a healthy immune system or support <laughs> a, uh, a, you know, a, a favorable mental health profile or whatever, you know, whatever it is that they're selling. So I would just say, look, if these are, the, th- this is a domain in which it is enabling you and empowering you as an individual to feel like you're taking control over your health yeah. and over your life, then I say, you know, go for it. Uh, that said, I did have a few patients that were literally spending hundreds of dollars a month on a lot of supplements of dubious, um, uh, you know, quality and or, or efficacy at the expense of evidence-based medications that they needed to be on in order to protect and reduce their cardiovascular risk, Ooh. manage their diabetes, because they wanted to take a quote-unquote natural approach. I'm doing air quotes here. That yeah, you can't <laughs> hear. You can't, those no, they're not very loud. Oh, oh, this is a <laughs> podcast. Okay, um, and and so it, it's really a balance in just saying, look, if uh, if you take it and it makes you feel better. I'm not going to get in an argument over what a placebo effect is and all of the rest of that. But I would just say, make sure that we're looking at the fundamentals and don't look at any of these supplements as being a quick fix, a quick fix, or some sort of way to avoid uh, some uh, real evidence-based and modern solutions that we have to uh, to treating very real uh, issues. Um, so again emphasis on the term supplement that's Mm. sometimes a supplement for some people becomes a replacement that's where that's where a lot of my concerns are okay well said uh what do you wish more people knew about or believed with your experience in talking to patients as a doctor um like this is like if i had one wish (laughs) Like if if I could get people to believe you on one thing that increasing uh, increasing fruits and vegetables in their diet is actually does seem to have some kind of protective effect against certain cancers and cardiovascular disease and general inflammation in the body that is more than just I don't know it I feel like it's a message that has just become so old, like eat your fruits and vegetables and that it's, that it's not taken as seriously because it's just like, it's not new, you know, it's not like we've been saying this for years, but it's like drink more water. Yes. And yeah. Exercise. Right. That all exercise. Get eight hours of sleep. Like all of these things. They're not very flashy. They're not, but when, okay. See now, okay. Here's, (laughs) here's the other thing I'm going to go off on. It's just that. I knew you would get. The thing sparked it, by this. Okay, well, your question was like, what do I wish people knew? I, is yeah, that or believed that we that we have evidence for things that seem to actually work, and a lot of those things are relatively simple and basic. Um, and because of that, I think that they're often dismissed. Um, so when we look at just the health of populations, okay, see, I'm just going to get, I'll try not to get too technical here. This is why I asked you to come on. Well, because, because right now, right now, I mean, I won't get into like a lot of what I do, but I, but right now, a lot of what I, uh, my, my responsibility is not just taking care of individual patients, but, but in my position, I'm trying to help manage the health of tens of thousands of patients um, through a care delivery organization by Working with physicians in order to promote, like I was saying, you know, evidence-based practices and ensuring that patients are getting preventative care. And the 
I don't want to say, well, it's not disappointing, It's just, but it is a little disheartening for all the work that we do as physicians. Really, what w- the effect that we have is probably, I don't know, like, I've, oh, shoot, I can't remember what the figure was, but it's like 10 to 15% mm. of actual patient outcomes. Oh. Like it's like we we're we're kind of turning the dial like just on a little tiny bit which for all the I, you know all the many years of practice yeah. I was in I just kind of feel like oh you know I'm, is you're it, trying so hard. I'm trying so hard <laughs> but I'm really only doing this much. Well so what's all the rest of it? What's yeah. all the rest of it? The rest of it is diet. The rest of it is physical activity, genetics and the zip code you you're born in. Wow. Uh, it's basically the what we refer to as our social determinants of health, which are, which have to do with um, the environment in which we grew up, mm-hmm. um, both psychologically, both you know behaviorally, as well as um, from a health standpoint, the exposures that we had as children or the exposures we have as adults. Um, and the circumstances under which we live our lives, getting back to, again, you know, diet and like you mentioned, sleep, which I think is highly underrated as well, um, and uh, and our adherence to different kinds of uh, healthcare practices. So, so I, I think your original question about what do I wish patients knew is just that all of those things really, in the end, are probably more I mean, that's really going to have m- wow. more to do with with what our outcomes are going to be than the kinds of medications that physicians will put people on. And that's not to say that there isn't some value. Obviously, there's a lot of value to you know managing diabetes and cardiovascular of disease. Course. And there are great treatments out there. Like for example, I would if I wish I could impress on more uh, patients how effective a certain class of medications called statins are. Uh, there, there's been some criticism of statins because they do cause some side effects in some people. But statin medications, which lower cholesterol, which is uh, often genetically determined, it's not mm-hmm. just like oh, you just it's, it's just from eating a lot of cheeseburgers or something like that. It's like no, there. Some of us are just genetically more talented in our ability <laughs> to create make cholesterol because you know as mammals we make we make cholesterol very effectively and it. Is is very necessary for our metabolism, but in our world of abundance and whatnot, um, it uh, also increases our risk under certain circumstances for uh, a heart attack and stroke. But there are medications that can bring that under the right kind of control, and I, I wish more people understood that uh, uh, how uh, how effective those can be uh, for the right people. Wow. Yeah. This is why I, it's so valuable to talk about it, right? To think, oh, there's some information that maybe I don't know that I need to know that is critical for my health. Yes. And yeah. we got to talk about it. Yeah, I mostly focus on like older adults and Medicare-aged adults. I, I, I there, There's a lot that uh, a lot of your listeners, uh, you know, should certainly review as, in terms of what they need for mm-hmm. their particular age categories, and that might be a little bit more than we have time to get into right now. But there, there are there's a lot that uh, that um, you know, adults as they get uh, closer to uh, age sixty five really need to get on top of to in order to be able to anticipate some of those issues that, as they come up. 
Like what? Well, I'm just thinking like uh, colon, you know, colon cancer when you're uh, age 50. Actually, the new recommendation is age 45. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure that uh, you're screening for diabetes, um, that you are uh, screening for osteoporosis if you have certain risk factors, and screening for. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, vascular disease, retinal disease if you're diabetic. It's just that everybody has different risk factors and. And there, it's it's really not one size fits all. And I would say, and I'm biased because my background is in family medicine, but I will say one of the best things that you can do is just establish a regular relationship with a primary care physician, even if you're not— That's what I was going to ask you because it seems overwhelming yeah. to come in and say, hey, I think I need this test and this and that. So for people who want to be very you know, prepared and healthy, then you suggest— Establishing a relationship yes. with their oh, over how many years? Like, is it too late to start? No, when? it's never. No, it's never too late. I. It, it's just I. I frequently saw people who I just wish I had the opportunity to see them. You know, five, ten years ago. But I mean, really? Yeah, because there are there are ways that we can try to head some of these things off. I think that many times people with diabetes, for example, live with diabetes for for years. Uh, well, at least months in some cases before they're actually diagnosed, you know, and and so having that, kind of having that relationship, having that regular check-in, that's just going to be a, a way that you can be more proactive again and just kind of feeling like you're taking control of your health. Uh, throughout your career, you've been able to meet lots of different kinds of people and really work in the medical field in a lot of different capacities for health insurance, for families, for individuals, um, hospice, nursing homes. I mean, you really have had quite a career and, and, and met a lot of people. In that time, has it changed the, the way that you sort of see relationships with people? Has it changed the way that you see life? Yes. Oh, for sure. How? Actually, I, I think that I have a lot more... Um, I've definitely developed a lot more empathy about people's individual backgrounds and where they came from. When I was first in private practice, I uh, and, and when I was working in the nursery, you remember for for many years and taking care of n- newborns and sick newborns, and and just uh, really seeing the backgrounds that people were where, where they were coming from, and a lot of these other factors, kind of like I was I was alluding to before, these social determinants of health, and kind of seeing how. It's a lot of the things that we take for granted in terms of our access to healthcare and our ability to be able to organize a lot of what are often very complex uh, requirements in order to be able to fulfill the the things that uh, are being recommended to us are just really difficult for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Some of them financial, some of them social, and some mm-hmm. of them environmental and behavioral. And I, I just... I, I've had a, a just a great opportunity to really see that from a lot of different perspectives. And then from another perspective, being able to see how the healthcare system itself works because I've been both on the practicing side and then right now I'm on the, the care delivery side, That which is to say that um, my, uh, my focus is on trying to manage resources for large healthcare organizations in order to make sure that we're using those resources effectively and we're not just wasting a lot on care that doesn't have very good evidence and that is in many cases harmful. Um, and because, you know, practices are always changing. And you know, like they always say, you know, yeah. when you graduate from med school, you know, 10 years 
10, 20 years later, half of that um, information that you learned is going to be incorrect or out of date. And the problem is you don't know which, you know, you don't know which half. And so it's, <laughs> things are constantly, uh, constantly changing. And so I, I, I see, uh, I have a lot of, um, uh, you know, just a lot more patience, I guess, in understanding um, the the pressures that the different parties are under, whether it's the hospital or whether it's the healthcare organization, the insurance company, the patient and the physician, and the different pressures that they're under in order to be able to try to make the healthcare system work better. But it's still fundamentally, there's still fundamentally a lot of, I'll just, the nicest way I can say it, there's still a lot of challenges (laughs) (laughs) in trying to get all of, get the right kind of, uh, get the right kind of alignment there. So, uh, I feel like I've had a, a unique opportunity to to kind of be an ambassador between those those different, uh, you know, those different pressures. Right, and I feel that it has led you to be very compassionate, very empathetic, very helpful. Yeah, well, everyone's doing the best. Everyone's doing the best they can, and it's just there. Like I mentioned before, there's been a lot of uh, there's just a lot of burnout uh, amongst physicians in the medical community in general. I don't know how much mainstream press attention that really gets, but there are a lot of uh, physicians, particularly in the hospitals, in emergency rooms, in primary care offices, uh, who are just leaving medicine. They're just retiring. Um, they're they're going and, and seeking out other careers or um, just uh, – and amongst nursing, it's also – there's also a crisis amongst nursing. It's hard to get staffing for nursing because they have been just so um, abused for so, uh, for so long and particularly over the last uh, couple of, of years. And it's been very difficult. There's been a lot of what we uh, refer to as moral injury in trying to provide the best care possible but not having the resources always to be able to provide that. Um, oh, you know, yeah. especially when you have overcrowded ICUs and you are trying to uh, manage patients that aren't really don't have really the same alignment as far as what those healthcare goals are <laughs> and preventative measures. I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, and it's created a bit of a crisis in the, in the system because it, we don't have enough uh, primary care physicians and in many parts of the country not enough nurses. So what are we going to do? Well, that's uh, – <laughs> so what are we going to do? <laughs> I know. See, I get to ask questions like that and then I can, see, right. I can see in your eyes your brain exploding. Like I have so many ideas and I don't even know which thread to go down. Well, a lot of it is – I think a lot of it is cultural within our healthcare system. A lot of it has to do with aligning, um, aligning incentives the right way so that we're – really providing the right kind of um, resources that are based on actual value. Like, like, what are the actual outcomes like? Like, I mean, we're— Yeah, does it like, work? Like, 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 I was talking about, you know, evidence-based care. It's just like we need to apply evidence to the way we design our systems because the way our systems are designed are not based on, um, you know, they, they were not— inten- let's just say they were not intentionally— uh, designed, you know, when you get some kind of surprise bill from the hospital, or you have to get an authorization for something, or you only get in to go see your doctor for like fifteen minutes. These were not. This was not an intentionally designed system. This this was a system that just has kind of come together as a result of a lot of different circumstances over the years. Yeah. So to answer your question, we have to really ask. Um, about how some of those systems are designed. Yeah. 
and uh, who's making some of those decisions and what sorts of resources that we have in place in order to support our caregivers. Yeah. That's oh, a yeah. very simple No, it is, answer. but uh, it but it it is powerful <laughs> though to say we need to take care of our caregivers. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. No, it it's the me, the mental health uh, yeah, mental health amongst caregivers has been low and it's and and uh, yeah, like I said, this is it, it's a comp, it's a complex problem. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, like I said in the beginning, of breaking down really complicated, intricate systems or ideas into a way that we can understand. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. The show is hosted by Lisa Valentine-Clark and produced by McKay Menden and Becca Hurley with help from Tabitha Freitas, Michael Combs, Kaya Dibb, and Brooke Soldani. Our music and post-production team includes Sam Clausen and Josh Fouts. As we speak, we're working on our next series of The Lisa Show, which is going to be all about body image. However, in the meantime, if you haven't heard it yet, we hope you'll go and check out the self-care series, an amazing 11 episodes uncovering every aspect of self-care you could imagine. Uh, It's got something for everybody. And of course, we love to hear from you. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook. Send us a message. Tell us what you think of the show. We love your stories. We take every message to heart, and it means so much to us that you talk to us.